0: Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and encourage people to trust him as Savior and Lord. Our commitment to Jesus must not be based on signs and wonders, but on who he is, the one and only god
1: Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you, and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock.
0: Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 4, John chapter 4, we're going to try and finish this chapter today. Remember that John the Evangelist wrote the gospel to do two things in John 20. He told us the purpose, one, number one, to persuade people that read the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And to that end, he records seven signs. Jesus actually did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles, supernatural signs, in his three and a half year ministry. He pretty well cleaned out any hospital out there in uh, Palestine during that period of time. But John only selected 7. 7 miracles that he called signs. A sign points to something else. A sign tells you to do something. The supernatural works of Jesus Christ, the 7 signs that John records, point to his divine nature as God in human form. Jesus said in John 14:11, he says, "Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, we have the same nature." Otherwise, believe for the works, the supernatural works that I do that bear evidence of me. In a few chapters earlier in John 5.36, he says, the very works that I do, the signs, the supernatural wonders, the healings, the demon exorcisms, etc., they testify about me. They demonstrate that the Father has sent me, that I came from heaven, that I am God in the flesh. So that's the first reason he wrote the gospel, is to persuade the reader that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, come in human form. The second reason he wrote the Gospel is to encourage the reader to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, the one who came to take away the sins of the world by dying in the place of the sinner. Those who believe, place their faith in Christ, will experience eternal life, knowing God uh, and living with Him forever in heaven. So, just to give you a little context, Jesus has been in Jerusalem performing miracles. And those miracles during the Passover festival have not gone unnoticed. Remember that uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus based on the miracles that have been seen. The Jewish religious leaders are really getting jealous. Uh, Jesus' crowds are getting bigger, and they are beginning to oppose him. Jesus just knows his time for the cross is not yet. So he leaves the southern part of Israel, Judea and Jerusalem, and goes back up north to Galilee in Nazareth. And on the way, we talked about last week, he stopped at a very small village called Sychar in the Samaritan village. He ran into a foreigner, a woman with a very checkered past, and he asked her for a drink. And we know that at the end of that conversation, she comes to faith in him as Messiah. Immediately following that, the disciples come up providentially and hear Christ say, the one who speaks to you is the Messiah. So anytime anybody says, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Not true. He said he was the Messiah to the woman at the well. Immediately following that, let's pick up the narrative in verse 28. John 4, 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, quote, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Close quote. They went out to the city and were coming to him. Here's the principle. Evangelism is taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. This is a famous, I think, probably the best definition I've read by Dr. Bill Bright of Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ. Let me read that again. Evangelism is, quote, taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. No one is too sinful to be saved. But many are too righteous to be saved, too self-righteous, right? Jesus showed the disciples in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well that we must set aside our self-interest, our prejudices, rearrange our priorities in order to maximize the opportunities for the gospel. Think about it. If there was ever an unlikely prospect for the gospel, it was the Samaritan woman. She wasn't interested in spiritual things at all. She had a long history of immorality, she was a social outcast, and she had a very spiritually mixed-up belief system. And yet, she responded to the Gospel and immediately brought her whole village out to the well to meet Christ and be saved. No one is beyond the grace of God, everyone is savable. But, in order to be saved, they have to know who Christ is, And for them to know who Christ is, someone has to tell them. Whose job description is that? Uh, Ours, right? God puts people on our path every day. We do not know how our attitudes and actions may influence them for eternity. I've had people come up and say, you know, you said blah, blah, blah 12 years ago. And immediately I get nervous. (laughs) What did I say? You know, and, and you pray that it, it would be one of those seeds that the Holy Spirit took and planted and bore fruit. That happens in your life all the time. You can go back to your childhood and think, you know, my uncle, my dad, my grandfather said, and it was just a toss-away phrase, and it stuck and grew fruit. That's what happened here, and that's what God's called us to do. It's a great, great privilege. So this woman became an excited follower of Jesus. Her conviction was contagious. So she goes back to the village, and she tells the men of the village, and by the way, the men of the village knew her well. She'd probably been married to some of them. She'd been married five times, and this was a small village. So when she said, come meet a man who told me all the things that I have done, I would imagine some of them got really nervous because they had probably done things with her that they did not want to be known. So you can imagine, some of them were going to the well just to make sure that this supernatural guy from the rabbi from Israel wouldn't say something that would, you know, blow their cover. Now, it's interesting. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, she did not make a statement that Jesus was the Messiah. She didn't make that statement. Now, she's a woman in that culture who's... who's who's, Um, Testimony was not uh, regarded in court as credible, and she was a woman of notoriety, so in that culture, she would have no credibility. But very wisely, she asks a leading question, expecting a negative response. She says, this is not the Christ, is it? Promoting some curiosity, and she let them draw their own conclusion. And as a result, it says people just streamed out of the village to check this rabbi, from Judea out, this Jesus, right? One of the most powerful testimonies was her attitude. She had a tremendous attitude, and it was great testimony. Before this, she wouldn't have spoken to any of them. Remember, she came out to the well at noon when no one was there because she was a social outcast. And now she goes into the town, and she brings up her sinful past. And it tells them about the Messiah, who revealed her sinful past to her and then promised her living water. Just the change in her attitude was, had to have been phenomenally convicting. She knew far less scripture than Nicodemus, and her background was far more notorious, but she believed in Jesus, and she's far bolder that Nicodemus in sharing her faith. We have no record that Nicodemus shared his faith anytime time throughout the Gospels. And she, immediately upon receiving Christ and accepting Him as Messiah within a matter of 30 seconds, goes to town and tells people. She has a cleansed conscience. She's completely forgiven. Her past does not hold her hostage. She has been set free from the shame and the guilt and the sin. And she shares her story with freedom and power and conviction. And the Holy Spirit works through her to accomplish salvation for this village. So we don't need to be Bible scholars to be effective witnesses. A witness tells what they know. That's why we put them on the stand in a courtroom. In order to be a witness, you need to be saved yourself. That would be a good start. You're going to testify to what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ. Be saved yourself. And you simply tell others about Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results up to God. So she's in the village, and Jesus, meanwhile, back at the well... He's beginning to teach his disciples about his mission of spiritually saving lost people. Now, the disciples, remember, have come back with food for Jesus to eat. They got their Big Mac and fries. They came back and they said, Jesus, eat something. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We talked about that last time. Now, Jesus' mission was to do the will of the Father. Their mission was lunch, a little bit different. And then they want to get out of Dodge and head up north to Galilee, which was their hometown. So Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost. So you will see this throughout Scripture, that Jesus is focusing on spiritual realities, and the disciples are focused on physical realities. And that is us. We so often focus on the things of this life, like food, and schedule, and plans, and Us. And Jesus is focusing on the lost. So Jesus has a comment to the disciples, pick up the narrative in verse 35, John 4, 35. Jesus says, Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Here's the principle. God's work in human history is saving people from their sins. And he has called us to work with him in completing his eternal plan. Let me say that again. God's work in human history is saving people from their sins. And he has called us to work with him in completing his eternal plan. Now, this proverb, four months until harvest, four months was the time, the minimum time between the very last sowing and the very first reaping. In that time, barley and wheat planting took place in November, December, and harvesting came four or five months later, in April, May. About 50% of the calories came from those two crops in that area. They didn't eat many vegetables, but mostly cereal grains. Jesus was probably looking over the fields at this point in time and seeing green sprouts coming out of the ground and mentioning the four months until harvest time. You know, when you plant a physical crop, you have to wait, right, for it to sprout and grow and mature before it's ready to be ripe and ready to harvest. Now, when wheat is ripe and it's ready to harvest, the grain that they grew in that area, the heads of grain look white. So when you're looking over a wheat field and it's ready to harvest, the the variety they grew there, you could look and the tops look like white. And that's how you knew, among other things, it was ready to harvest. When Jesus was saying this, he was looking at the crowd coming from the village of Sychar to the well. And in that era, they wore white and white turbans. So he was comparing the harvest of souls, the people coming out of the village wearing white, and the wheat fields that had white grain. So he's drawing an analogy between those. He's saying, you have to wait for the grain to ripen, but the spiritual harvest is ready every day. Jesus always has people every day ready to hear the gospel if we're willing to tell them. Do not procrastinate in sharing the gospel. Do not. Time is short. Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, live, walk means live, not as unwise men or women, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Tell people about Jesus while you can. You don't know how long the opportunity is going to be there. People do die, and some unexpectedly, and it may be you. So while you have opportunity, redeem the time. Make the most of the time. Be about your Father's business. So Jesus, he sees the approaching crowd of Samaritans. He says, tells the disciples, I want you to join me in this harvest of souls. It's about to take place. I'm going to save many people this afternoon, and you can work with me in reaping this harvest and be rewarded. And he uses the metaphor of physical harvest with spiritual harvest. And he uses the term sowing and reaping, which means planting the seed and harvesting the seed. When you sow the gospel, you're proclaiming the gospel, you're sharing Christ with someone. Reaping is actually seeing them come to faith. And both sowers and reapers are necessary for a physical harvest, and both sowers and reapers are necessary for a spiritual harvest, right? God calls some to plant. God calls some to harvest. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters or anything, but God who causes the growth. Now in our culture, Christian culture, We tend to give honor to those who harvest, because it's visible. You know, Billy Graham, he does a crusade, and you see hundreds of people stream forward, and we kind of look at that harvest, and we go, wow. But if no one planted the seeds of the gospel, there probably wouldn't be much harvest. Sowing the seeds of the gospel is not glamorous because you don't always get to see the harvest. By the way, most people don't respond to the gospel the first time they hear it. They may watch someone's life for years before they decide to make a decision for Christ. So our job is to be faithful, to do whatever job God's called us to do. And he says, I will reward you and you will have joy in serving me. Now, sowing seed is hard work both agriculturally and spiritually, it requires faith. If you've ever planted a garden, growing a garden requires faith. So you you plant the seed in the ground, or you plant the tomato, but whatever you're doing, and you are trusting that in the future, something's going to come out of the ground, and you're going to have a harvest, right? Reaping, harvesting, picking the fresh tomato is a heck of a lot more fun than sowing because the, the crop itself, you know, is tangible reward for all your hard work. Psalm 126 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So, reaping souls is more fun than sowing the seed. But God has called us to continually sow because He's the one. Is going to bring forth the growth. Now, John the Baptist was a sower, right? John the Baptist went before Christ. He was the forerunner, he was the way shower. he was the one who was appointed to, to point Israel to their Messiah. Your Messiah has come and he planted the seeds of repentance. Christ came and reaped the harvest of souls who responded to the gospel. By the way, when we talk about sowing the gospel or, or sharing the gospel, whatever, Most of the time, that's not speaking to others. It's speaking to God first. Most of the time, it's praying. It's praying that God will touch that person's heart. That God will open that family members, that friends, that colleague, that neighbor, whatever their relationship is, that the Lord will open their heart to hear about Jesus. Always talk with God about a person before you talk to that person about God. So prayer always precedes evangelism. If you're not praying before you're speaking, you're probably throwing seed on hard soil. So pray, 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 pray consistently, because if the Holy Spirit doesn't draw them to Jesus, they aren't coming, no matter how brilliant we present, right? You know this. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, because the word of the woman who testified, saying, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one indeed is the Savior of the world. Here's the principle. Everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved and Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved, and Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Interesting, in the biblical narrative, the four Gospels, this is the only place that it records that a village as an entity came to Christ. And this was a despised Samaritan village. Gentile. Can you see that God's, (laughs) I don't want to say humor, but God's heart for the lost. He doesn't care what your orientation, your background, your identity is. He says, I came to save you, to seek and to save the lost. God had promised in the Old Testament that Messiah was to be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but also of the whole world. Isaiah 49.6, he says, God says, is it too small a thing that you, Israel, should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you, Israel, a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So God planned from time immemorial to save the nation of Israel, and through Israel and her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save the world from their sins. And the Jews misunderstood that. They thought that salvation was for them alone and not for the world. By the way, some Christians think that today. You know, it's my particular belief system, it's my denomination, it's my church. We have the truth, and everybody who doesn't agree with my particular branded version is not going to get in. Uh, That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Jesus saves people because he loves them. But he also wants to love and save others through those he's already saved. So you have a job description to carry the life-giving news of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who God wants to save through you, using you. God will redeem people from every part of the world, and the salvation of God is available only through one Savior, not many Saviors, right? The the Samaritan said, the Savior, the Savior, singular. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. So this word Savior, Yeshua, Jesus, means Savior. He will save his people from their sins. That was Jesus' name. A Savior is a rescuer. A Savior is only necessary for someone who needs saving. The recent floods we've had in California have shown us the vital importance of what we call swift water rescue teams. Swift water rescue folks, floodwaters are pretty powerful. If you've been watching television at least a couple weeks ago, you obviously saw that a good flood can sweep away cars, houses, trees, roads, bridges, right? Everything. And we've seen lots of pictures in early January of people sitting on top of their cars or clinging to the top of their car, waiting to be rescued because the flood water swept their car away, right? They need a savior. They need a rescuer. The only thing worse than needing to be rescued is refusing to be rescued. And you know people like that. I don't need no saving as they're falling mid-air and they're saying, so far so good, right? Until you hit the ground. One of the most interesting rescues in the Bible was Jonah. God rescued Jonah by force. Remember, Jonah's trying to run away from God. He says, I'm not going to no stinking Nineveh and tell them about Jesus. You can nuke those people, and I'd be delighted if you did. So he gets on a ship, and he heads out to Tarshish. God sends a great storm. The storm is going to literally sink the boat and kill all innocent and sailors. And Jonah says, throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. I would rather drown than go to Nineveh. okay. They throw him overboard and the storm stops and they worship the God of heaven because the storm stops. So by his disobedience, he brings glory to God and God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to send a living submarine and I'm going to deliver you to the shore and you are going to go to Nineveh, right? Which he ultimately did. God saved the place and then Jonah got all hacked off because God didn't nuke him like he wanted to nuke him. But Jonah had a change of heart. How do we know that? Because he wrote the book. That's chapter 5. There's only four chapters in Jonah, but he wrote the book, which means he had a change of heart, right? So the Samaritans make this profound declaration. We know that this one, Jesus, is indeed the Savior of the world. Plural, the only Savior of the entire world. And that declaration in verse 42 is the reason that John recorded this story. They initially came to Jesus based on the testimony of the woman. Then they asked Jesus to stay with them. Jesus stayed with them 48 hours. Can you imagine what they talked about in 48 hours? If you had 48 hours face-to-face with Jesus, I don't think you'd sleep very much. I think you would have a lot to talk about, right? So life-changing that after two days with Jesus, the people of Sychar now said they believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world, and that declaration was never made by the Jews, only by the Samaritans. Not Savior of the Jews, not Savior of the Samaritans, Savior of the world. By the way, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. It means that Jesus made everyone save a bull by paying the penalty for their sin, and those who believe on him will obtain salvation. So the Samaritan village understood and believed that he was God come in the flesh, the promised Messiah, who would save those who believed on him. Interesting, they didn't believe on him because of signs and wonders. He didn't do a miracle there. He didn't do any sign or wonder. They believed on him because of his word, what he said based on who he was, and they are commended for their faith. Verse 43. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Here's our principle. Our commitment to Jesus must not be based on signs and wonders, but on who he is, the one and only God-man. Our commitment to Jesus must not be based on signs and wonders, but on who he is, the one and only God-man. So Jesus left Jerusalem in the south because of opposition by the religious Jewish leadership, not the common people, this was mostly Pharisees and Sadducees, the the, the leadership, the um, Sanhedrin wanted him dead, and so he left. He had the divine appointment to save the Samaritan woman and the entire village of Sychar, and now he leaves and heads up north to Galilee. And John inserts a parenthetical sidebar comment here in verse 44. And this is the proverb, a prophet has no honor in his own country. You know what an expert is? An expert is someone who knows everything that the local people do, but they come 150 miles away, so now they're brilliant. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea. It's the southern part of Israel. However, he was raised in Nazareth, which is, which is Galilee, the northern part of Israel. So in that sense, Nazareth was his hometown, and Galilee was his home country. That's where he was raised, right? 30 years there. So John is contrasting the honor that he received from the Samaritans and the lack of honor that he's receiving from the Jewish community, both in Galilee and Judea. See, you've experienced this. Hometown folk know you. They knew you when. They knew you when you had diapers, right? And some of them can't hardly believe that you've grown up, left home, and actually become an adult. Some of you have parents or had parents back in the day who thought you were still a child at 40, right? You know what I'm talking about. So Jesus comes back to Galilee, and they go, we know you, we know your brothers, we knew your mama, your daddy, right? We knew you when you weren't nobody, You were a stonemason carpenter technon, right? You were a blue-collar worker with your daddy. And we can't believe that you who came from us, backward Hicktown Nazareth, are the Messiah, the promised one from God. They could not make that connection. However, the very next verse says that they received him. They welcomed him. And you say, well, if he's got no honor in his own country... How come the next verse says they received him? Well, they had just come back from the Passover festival in Jerusalem. And they had seen, physically, all the miracles Jesus did in Jerusalem. They were not interested in Jesus, the Messiah. They were very interested in Jesus, the miracle worker, right? From Galilee. Back in the day when I was in high school, yeah, I'm dating myself, in 1973, Neil Diamond, Uh, recorded a song called Brother Loves Travel and Salvation Show, right? Remember that? Hot August Nights album. It's a great (laughs) album, by the way. Tells the story of an itinerant preacher who wows the crowds and and, and just really has a good show. The Galileans were like that crowd. They loved the spectacular. They loved the supernatural. Even Nicodemus, he came to Jesus because of the many miracles he'd seen Jesus do. So this crowd from Galilee... His hometown, they welcomed him because they wanted to be entertained. They hoped that he would do miracles in their hometown like he did down south in Jerusalem, because they'd just seen him do a whole batch of them at the uh, at the at the Passover festival. What they would not tolerate is him doing miracles and blessing the Gentiles, which of course he does. They have a short-term, superficial acceptance of Jesus. They do not have a scriptural-informed lifetime commitment to Him. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils? And there's a sower who goes out and sows the seed, and there's four soils, which four kinds of hearts that, that listen to the gospel. The second soil is the rocky soil. And Jesus said, when the, when the sower sows the seed, which is the gospel, the word of God, and it falls on rocky soil. It's like someone who hears the gospel message, and they're very excited about it, That sprouts immediately, and, and new growth comes. But the soil is really thin, and underneath that thin soil is a layer of limestone bedrock, which is a pretty good chunk of northern Israel, right? And so when the root hits that bedrock, it can't get any more water, and the plant just folds over when the sun comes up and dies. So this rocky soil represents people who hear the gospel, They respond to it with joy, but since they have no root in themselves, when trouble and trials occur, they wither and fall away. That's the crowd in Galilee. If you're going to remain rooted and committed to Jesus Christ as Messiah, it has to be based on understanding who he is, not the wowie-kazowie signs and wonders he does. That was their problem. They're unbelievers in Galilee. Their hearts are rocky and their faith is superficial. Verse 46. Therefore, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now the journey from Sychar, that little village, to Cana is about 40 miles. So if you walk three miles an hour, probably no more than that. It'll take a couple days to get there. And it says there was a royal official... Basilikos is the Greek. It was the title of a man who served a king. So he was a royal official of a king, either in a civil capacity or maybe a military capacity. The king here was probably Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, remember, was the, happened to be the ruler when uh, Christ was uh, around. And he built a Jewish temple. He spent 46 years building a Jewish temple trying to impress the Jews. Now this Herod Antipas, the current king who this guy served, is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded, because this Herod had married his half-brother's sister, and John called him out on it and said, that is adultery, you have no right doing that. Herod didn't like it and imprisoned him, and then took his head off uh, because his uh, stepdaughter danced a very flaming dance, and he got drunk and said, what do you want? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. So he made a big mouth promise in front of his guests, so he had to keep it, so he had John the Baptist executed. So Jesus is back in Cana, this royal official is probably Jewish, we're not sure, we don't know his identity, and it's interesting that John starts the work of Jesus in Cana, turning the water into wine, and he goes down to Jerusalem, comes back to Samaria, saves the Sychar village, now he's back in Cana again, and he's going to do another miracle. Now, the official's son is not in Cana. Where Jesus is. The official son is in Capernaum. The distance between Cana and Capernaum is about 16, 18 miles, right? And you go, well, no big deal, jump in your F-150 and you get over there. Well, they walked back in the day, right? And they didn't have Nikes either, so it took a while. 16 to 18 miles was probably several hours' walk. Verse 47. <laughs> when this official heard that Jesus had come out of Judea north into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Here's the principle. Whatever your problem, bring it to Jesus. Whatever your problem, bring it to Jesus. Did you hear that? Whatever your problem, bring it to Jesus. This son is sick. It seems that he's getting progressively sicker as time goes on. I'm sure the father's got royal connections. He's probably consulted all the medical authorities that are available for help, and no one can help solve this medical problem. So the son is progressively sinking. The father's convinced he's going to die. He hears about Jesus who's come north, and he's heard about all the miracles he did in Jerusalem, all the sick people he healed, all the demoniacs he exercised, and he rushes from Capernaum to Cana to beg Jesus to come and heal his son. Now, the royal official made two assumptions about Jesus, both of which turned out to be patently false. First assumption. In order for Jesus to heal his son, Jesus has to be physically present with the son. He can't heal at a distance. He's literally got to be in the same room as his son and heal him. Secondly, Jesus has to come to Capernaum immediately and heal him because if his son dies, there's nothing Jesus can do. And you'd have made the state assumptions if you were that individual with that level of knowledge. But both of those are assumptions that are not true about divinity, which Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus responds to this father's pleas in a very unusual fashion. He rebukes the father and he rebukes the crowd... That's surrounding them. This crowd are voyeurs. That means they want to see a miracle. They're simply there for, Jesus, perform a sign for us, jump through the hooves, do a miracle, and we'll be impressed. And Jesus is rebuking their unbelief and the unbelief of the Father, but he's not rebuking their unbelief in miracles. It is utterly interesting that in the New Testament, no one There is no record of any Pharisee, Sadducee, Sanhedrin, none of Jesus' enemies ever denied that he did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles. None. There's no record. There were simply too many miracles and too many eyewitnesses. But belief in his miracles is not the same as belief in his sovereignty as the Messiah. But that was the extent of the belief. They believed that he was a wonder-working prophet. They wanted to see miracles so they could marvel at him. You know, it's like watching the X Games or watching the Olympics. And some of us just like to see people do stuff that looks impossible. And for us, it would be impossible. As a matter of fact, many of us would wind up in the hospital if we even got a third of the way through some of the routines, right? That was this crowd. They want Jesus, you know, the Mad Max of the Princess Bride, to do a miracle, right? Do something. So the Jews believed in Jesus' miracle, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't believe His Word. They wanted to be entertained, but they didn't want to be changed and transformed. This is not new. Many people come to church today for the same reasons. Entertain me. You know, sing a song that makes my heart go pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. You know, I want the emotional high, but don't confront my sin. And don't challenge me to repent. And don't challenge me to change. I just want the emotional massage of coming here and having the, the spirit move. Yeah, you're in a state of hypnosis what you are. Anyway. However, as John tells us, the primary reason Jesus did miracles was not to entertain people. That wasn't the point. The point was to reveal his deity so that people would believe in his divine identity and be saved from their sins. What use is this to see Jesus' miracles if he refuse to accept him as Lord and then spend eternity separated from him in hell? Verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started off. Here's a very basic principle that we all struggle with. Here it is. If you believe what Jesus says, you'll do what he says. If you believe what Jesus says, you'll do what he says. The father begs Jesus, come to Capernaum before my son dies, and Jesus does not give him what he asks. He's not going to Capernaum. However, he gave the father a command, and he gave him a promise. He said, go, your son lives. The command was go, the promise was your son lives. So the father believed what Jesus had promised and obeyed what Jesus commanded. Good model if you're looking for what to do. When Jesus gives you a command, do it. When he gives you a promise, believe it. Did you just hear that? When Jesus gives you a command, do it. When Jesus gives you a promise, believe it. He stopped asking and he set out for home. By the way, when Jesus gives you a command, that's a good time to shut up. No more talking. He's told you, go your son lives. If the man had sat there and said, you got to heal him, you got to heal him, it would have indicated, I don't believe your words. I don't believe your words. I have to continue to persuade you to do the right thing. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And this man, this father, exercised faith in Jesus' word, and he left for home without visible evidence of his son being healing. That's obedience. That's faith. And his faith was rewarding. What's interesting is what not, what's not mentioned. It's interesting that there's no record of any crowd following this father back to Cana to see if Jesus' words actually came true and the boy was healed. No record, because it didn't happen. The crowd dispersed because if Jesus wasn't going to do something sensational, they weren't interested. They are sign seekers, not God seekers. Verse 51. As he, the father, was going down to his home, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them. At what hour he began to get better? Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour, that exact hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Here's the principle. Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and encourage people to trust him as Savior and Lord. Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and encourage people to trust him as Savior and Lord. So when the son's fever broke, the slaves left the estate and started walking toward Cana. They were going to inform their master, your son's okay. Okay. They they wanted to ease his mind. They didn't know he was coming back. They didn't know he met Jesus. They didn't know what Jesus did. They just knew that the fever broke, and they were going to, it was a very loving thing to do, they were going to go and tell him, your son's okay. And you can only imagine the father's joy and relief when he met them on the way, and they told him, you know, your son's healed. So the father has got a dilemma now. The father wants to know if Jesus is just a prophet who can foretell the future, or if Jesus is God who can actually make things happen. If Jesus is merely a prophet, then he could say, your son lives, and the fever might have broken anyway at some point in the future. You know, just your son lives. We have a lot of, quote, prophets now that make very general predictions so that, you know, chance would indicate that that could happen, and then they take credit for it. So he says, exactly what time did the fever break? When did he begin to get better? And they say, yesterday, the seventh hour, 1 p.m. in the afternoon, the fever broke. And the father goes, that's the exact time when Jesus spoke the word. Your son lives. This was proof that Jesus was more than a prophet. It was proof that Jesus was divine. He was the master over sickness and disease. And John notes this was the second sign that Jesus had performed. The first one was water into wine, right? Now, this is not the second miracle. He's been doing dozens of miracles at the Passover feast. John uses the word sign to refer to something that points to something else. And in this particular case, Jesus' supernatural signs pointed to his divine nature, pointed to the fact that he is God and demonstrated that he was promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So this whole section of John is bracketed by the bookends of two miracles. The first miracle at Cana, and the second miracle at Cana as well. Interesting. Both the water into wine and the supernatural healing of the official's son seem to be prompted by trust, an expression of trust. Remember at the wedding, they ran out of wine, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, says, they have no wine. She's expressing her faith that he will do something. I mean, she knows he's God. The angel told her that before he was born, right? This is going to be the Son of God. So she trusted Jesus to do something about the wine, the lack of wine. And now this father comes and implores Jesus and trusts him to heal his son. So both these signs are evidenced or initiated by the faith of somebody else, which Jesus, in his divine timing, decides to respond to. So, supernatural signs prove the deity of Christ and obviously encourage people to f- place their faith in Christ. As a result of the sign at Cana, water into wine, who, who's the scripture say believed? It says his disciples believed. In this case, the royal official's son was healed, and it says he and his whole household believed not that Jesus was simply a miracle worker, but that he was the Son of God. That's the belief structure that John is driving us to. Belief is not just, I believe that he can do signs and wonders, I believe that he is God. It's interesting that both of these miracles are very, almost private. You remember the miracle at Cana? Who knew about the miracle at Cana? The servants who brought the water, Jesus, Mary, and the disciples. The crowd that's drinking the wine at the wedding feast don't have a clue. Neither does the head steward. He said, "You brought out the best wine at the end, right? Who knows about this miracle? The disciples and the royal official and his household. That's it. That's it. I think sometimes we think about the miracles of Jesus and,, oh, the feeding of the 5,000, 20,000 people, and you look at the bread, being, and you know you think that's, all, that's what Jesus does.' big big spectacular miracles. Not so. There's a time when his signs are elevated to a very public space. But these first two are very, very private. Indicating to me, the greatest miracle of all is not manipulation of the natural world. That's nothing. The greatest miracle of all is salvation. That the Spirit of God comes to us and gives us new birth, and regenerates us, and the very life of God enters us, and God the Holy Spirit lives in us, and gives us the desire to know, love, and serve God, who we formerly were enemies. And those miracles are private and happen in your heart, you and Jesus. So the greatest miracles are always private. And we are blessed, almost every service at this church, to see the Holy Spirit doing miracles in people's hearts. And it's not just the miracle of initial salvation. It is a miracle when someone repents and comes back to the Lord. It is a miracle when someone rededicates their life. It's a miracle when someone comes to church and says, I haven't been in church in 25 years. I need to be here. I haven't been in church since I was a child. That's a miracle from God the Holy Spirit. So regeneration and the life of Christ in you is the greatest miracle of all. So we look at this and and. It's true that Jesus did work through, most of the time, through natural law. Many times he abrogated natural law to reveal his deity, but the whole point he was talking most importantly about spiritual transformation, not physical transformation, right? So you and I have been entrusted with the greatest treasure on earth. The gospel is good news, right? It's the good news that sinful man, who's separated from God, can have an eternal relationship with holy God. That relationship can be reconciled. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to pay the penalty for our sin by dying in our place. And you are here today, and only here today, because somebody was faithful in carrying the gospel to you. Or you would not be here. God has people in our life, your life and my life, this week, who he wants us to touch. Now, I don't know whether that's going to be a harvesting experience, a seed planting experience. You might pray with somebody who's heartbroken. You might encourage them. You might drop a card to them. You might pray for them. That's all part of the sowing and the reaping. It's not simply, I'm going to read you the four spiritual laws. That's harvest. And just not saying it's not important. But there's an awful lot of work that goes on in loving someone to the Lord that doesn't involve the four spiritual laws. Make sense? Let's summarize, and then Al's going to come and lead us in prayer and praise. One, evangelism is taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Pray to God before you talk to somebody about God. Number two, God's work in human history is saving people from their sins and... He has called us to work with Him in completing His eternal plan. I have no idea why God works with fallen people like you and me to accomplish eternal salvation, but He does. And it is a great privilege and a vast responsibility to partner with God as His fellow laborers. He is the head of the body, Christ is, and we are His body here on earth to love people to Him. Number three, everyone is a sinner who needs to be saved, And Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Number four, our commitment to Jesus must not be based on signs and wonders, but on who He is, the one and only God-man. So our commitment to Jesus is based on truth, which is revealed in the Word of God. Whatever your problem, bring it to Jesus. You know, it's been said that some people, when they say we need to pray about it, they say, oh, has it come to that? (laughs) Like... Prayer is the last thing you do before the ship goes down and you're, you, know, you're, you haven't breathed in 30 seconds because you're underwater. Prayer is the first thing you do. Don't wait for the problem before you pray. Pray for the day before you get out of bed so you don't run into things. You know, We're at the age and stage where that happens. We need all the help we can get, right? That's a laughter. Yeah, I get it. It's convicting. Number five, if you believe what Jesus says, you will do what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? And lastly, Jesus' miracles demonstrate his deity and encourage people to trust him as Savior and Lord. So when you read John, and please, I would encourage you don't just read ahead, read this gospel five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times in the next few months. You will learn things far beyond what I can possibly share with you because the Holy Spirit will be your guide. Okay? Wow. A lot of material, right? Keep your seat belts on. Get your running shoes on. We've got months and months to go. So anyway, love you all. Now that you know, do